0: Uh, Let's read our passage this evening and pray, and uh, we'll get in to 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we. we, uh, I approached this subject with much trepidation. Uh, Lord, uh, yes, the issue of racial reconciliation, but Lord, this issue of love, uh, Lord, it is much easier for me to love myself than it is to love others and to love you. Lord, I, I, I really, at the bottom of my heart, I, I really want my agenda and not yours and not others. And so Lord, I, I pray that you would displace me even while I preach. Lord, I, I pray that you displace us as a people. You, Lord, you would knock us uh, off a bit, that we might reorient with the gospel. And Lord, so I, I pray that you would hold yourself up, uh, not just a, 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 vis- a, a social vision, but Lord, I pray that you would, you would put before us a vision of yourself uh, that is so enticing uh, that we prefer it over our agenda's. Uh, Lord, do this for your glory, we ask. Amen. Uh, so tomorrow, uh, some of us have off work. Um, some of us don't. Uh, but tomorrow is a big day. Uh, tomorrow is a day that we celebrate uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s life and his work. Uh, it's been almost 49 years since he was he was tragically assassinated. And this really got, got to me this week because I, I, I turned 36 here soon. And I think, golly, he had, only, uh, he, he had only been killed for 13 years when I was born. Blows my mind. Uh, but this holiday provides an opportunity for our church to address this issue of race as it relates to the gospel. And race is, in fact, at, at, first and foremost, is a gospel issue. It's easy to make it, first and foremost, a political issue or a social issue, but that would be to make a mistake. And it's one that's common. American evangelicals, the stream of Christianity in which we swim as a church, has chosen to place race as a political social issue and so that they could ignore it. But it's right there in the Bible. It's not just in the news. But by ignoring it, we, we, we allow this to happen. But listen to the Scripture. Listen to how deeply theological and deeply gospel this is to address this issue of race. There in the very beginning, Genesis 1, we see Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God is diverse within himself. <laughs> then we see that he makes man in his image. Genesis 1. Then Genesis 12, after, uh, after, after humanity has fallen, God begins to, to redeem his people through Abraham. And he would send his, people, his salvation, yes, to Abraham and his descendants. But you remember what it said, don't you? In Genesis 12, it says that they were to bless all nations. So this salvation was to extend to all different kinds of people. Then all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, after Genesis 12, we see God drawing non-Jews into his people. We see King Naaman, who's king of Syria. He's converted, 2 Kings 5. We see Jonah. Jonah is sent uh, to a Syrian city, not a Jewish city, the Syrian city, the most pagan city known of in the day, to go and preach to them. And the whole city's converted. We see, uh, we see in Ruth, Ru, Ruth was a non-Jew, and she was converted through her friendship with her mother-in-law. Maybe the first ever to be converted by their mother-in-law. I'm kidding. But Ruth was converted by her mother-in-law, and, uh, who was a Jew, Naomi. And then we get to the New Testament, and we find Jesus interacting with all kinds of non-Jews. He heals a, a, the servant of a Roman centurion in Matthew 8. He dispossesses demons from the daughter of... Uh, of a Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. We see the wise men. The wise men are non-Jews who come to Jesus. And then Jesus offers salvation to a Samaritan of all people in John chapter 4. This, This theme continues as we go throughout the New Testament too. We see in Acts, the Spirit does fall down in Jerusalem, but then it spreads with Holy Spirit power to Judea, Samaria, and then even to Rome and everywhere in between. And in Revelation chapter 7, our friend Mike Aitchison, in the fall, he preached from this passage where we're given a picture of people of all races. that are gathered around the throne of Jesus, worshiping him in glory. So do you see it? Race is a theological issue. It's an issue that the church and our church must engage if we're going to be faithful to the scriptures. Yet it is an issue that we've ignored, not just in our pulpit, but in our lives. Rather, we've huddled ourselves to like people. We've huddled ourselves into educated middle-to-upper-class enclaves, and we've pursued lots of other things as an evangelical church. we pursued biblical parenting, biblical marriage, biblical literacy, evangelism, but we've ignored this issue of race, and we've ignored the need for racial reconciliation. And this is why as a church, TCPC Downtown, that we're going to engage this issue, not just today, not just every MLK, the, the Sunday before MLK Day, but we're going to address it throughout the year in our pulpit, in our neighborhood groups, and most importantly, in our everyday lives. And so today's sermon, is it, from 1 Corinthians 13, which if you notice, I don't read anything about race explicitly in this text. In this chapter, you, we, see, we see it read in weddings, don't we? But really, it's not written to wives and to Husbands, it's written to the whole church. And it's written to address a, a vast array of problems in the First Corinthians church. Let me, let me talk to you about first, this church in Corinth. It was a mess, a complete mess. Uh, chapter 1, he does address uh, race, but chapter 1 he also addresses that there's different factions in the church. There are some people who follow Paulus, some people follow Paul, some people follow Peter. Then chapter 5, we have a son who commits adultery with his stepmother. Let me say that again. A son commits adultery with his stepmother. This was a church in Corinth. Not some random people on the street, but in the church. Chapter 6: Believers are suing one another. Chapter 6: There's prostitution in the church. Chapter 7, there's all kinds of confusion on marriage. Chapter 8, there's confusion about food that's offered to idols. Chapter 9, the Corinthian church is questioning Paul's authority and his leadership. Chapter 11, there's a preference for rich people in the church. Chapter 12, there's questions about how to do this thing that we're doing right now, corporate worship. So this place is a mess. And anyone who says, maybe you've heard this, you've been around church for a while, I want to go back to the New Testament church is naive. naive. Uh, because it's somehow, it's somehow the New Testament church was more pure and less tainted with corruption than the modern church, but First Corinthians puts that all to rest. This place, the church of Corinth, was a circus. But what's going to cure it? If these are the problem, what's the solution? It's First Corinthians thirteen. It's love. I know this is a text that that, that I that I've preached from at weddings. This is a text I've heard read at weddings. This is a, a text that, that that we that we hang on the wall, that we have written and hung on the wall. We put it in, in cards. But this is this this that's not the context that it was really written in. You can apply it to those contexts. But this was written as the healing for a really messed up church. Now, I'm not so sure our list of problems in our church would be all that much different than the the one that are listed in 1 Corinthians. But no doubt, one of the ones that would have to be addressed if our our church was addressed in this manner would be race. And there's no doubt that love is what we need. So I'm going to break down this passage um, in really three sections. The the first one is verses 1 to 3, the supremacy of love. Uh, Verses 4 to 7 is the character of love. And verses 8 to 13 is the forever of love. So supremacy, character, and forever. I couldn't get it to, be, to rhyme. I couldn't get it to be the same letter. I'm just going for it. So the supremacy of love, verses 1 to 3. Um, I read those earlier, but you look at it. And it's really a commentary on the state of the Corinthian church at the moment. Uh, the Corinth uh, was a major metropolitan city. There was a, uh, they had a powerful economy. There was lots of educational opportunity. And this is what cities are like, right? Look at verses 1 to 3. You, you, you'll see that it says prophetic powers. What does that mean? It means spiritual intuition. Then it talks about understanding all mysteries. What does that mean? It means knowing a lot about the Bible. See, mysteries in the Bible doesn't mean something that's, something that can't be understood, that it's, it's somehow illogical. But mystery, as, as used by Paul in the New Testament, means that it's a, it's a revelation of God that was formerly unrevealed. So what it means that, that they understand all mystery means they know a ton about the Scriptures. These people were highly biblically literate. Then it says that they have all knowledge. It means they're really educated. They have faith to move mountains. It refers that they have really gifted leaders in this church. But then it steps it up a notch. All these things are gifts and talents. But then in verse 3, we see, we see it move to something different. It says that they're generous givers, that they give away a lot of money. It says that they're sincere in their beliefs, that they're willing to be burned. So these are people with higher integrity. They're not hypocrites. And if your friend came to you and says, hey, I'm at a really great church. There's gifted leaders there. They really take the Bible seriously at this church. Um, they, uh, they're very spiritually discerning. Um, they're really committed and sincere. They give away a lot of money. They're willing to die for what they believe in. When you say, wow, that sounds like a great church. But Paul's evaluation of this kind of church would be this. It's a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. All this group amounted to was irksome racket. That's not to say these other things are wrong or bad or totally worthless. It's just to say they're not central. The Bible is important. Leadership and education are important and valuable, but they pale in comparison to love. Love is supreme. But notice the way the comparisons that Paul makes with love. They're, they're ways of relating to people. You can relate to people with power, that's leadership. You can relate to people with an exchange or transfer of knowledge, that's education. You can relate with people by preaching at them the Bible. You can relate to one another with prophetic powers, which is another way of saying that we are told and we're being that we're being told and we're telling the deep truths, the heart motivations that exist in one's soul. You can give away money and die for others and and be out of step with God's desires for relating. These are ways of relating that you and I operate in day in and day out, but they lack the supremacy of love. So do you relate to people in these ways? Do you tend to be the dispenser of knowledge going around spouting out what you know? Do you tend to relate with another according to an organizational chart? Maybe it, maybe it just exists in your own mind, but there are people above you and beneath you. And you have a desired place in this chart. And so you relate in a leadership manner throughout everybody that you're in a relationship with. Do you see yourself as the great prophet that tells people the truth without earning the right to be heard? Do you strain to know the right thing in all situations just because it's the right thing? Kind of like giving your money away kind of like being so convicted of something that you're going to be persecuted for it and die? See, each of us, we have a default way of relating to others because we're fallen human beings. See, love is not natural to us. What's natural is using people and bargaining with God. There's a great illustration I heard this week um, it was from Charles Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon was a 19th century British pastor. And he tells a story of a man who had a very modest garden. And really by accident, he grows this enormous carrot. He had never known, he never had grown anything this good, never had grown anything this large. And what he wanted to do with this carrot was give it to the king so he goes to the king's court, and he gives them this carrot, and he says, King, I admire you so much, and I'm so grateful for your leadership that I wanted to give you the best thing that I have ever grown in my garden. Here's this token. Here's this carrot as a token of my loyalty and gratitude for you. The king responds, and he says, Thank you so much. Uh, you know what? I- I've got a field that's adjacent to your property, uh, and I'd like for you to farm it and keep whatever you grow on it. He was overwhelmed, and he said, thank you so much for my king. While they're having this exchange, uh, the king and this carrot man, uh, there's a, a nobleman who overhears the conversation. And the nobleman overhears the interaction. He comes up with a plan of his own. He's going to go to court the next day. And he's going to bring the, his strongest, fastest, healthiest horse, and he's going to offer it to the king, just like the gardener had offered the carrot. So he does. He brings it and says, "King, this is this is the finest horse I've ever had. I'd like for you to have it." The king sees right through it. And he says, "The gardener gave the car- gave me the carrot for me. You are giving me the horse for you." The gardener gave me the carrot for my sake and you are giving me the horse for your sake. Friends, isn't this what we do with God? Isn't this what we do with one another? We give people things that we might get return. That might not be money, but it could be status. It could be approval. We we give obedience to God for what we might get in return. That if we give obedience to God, that he's going to give us an easy life, a comfortable life. If we give obedience to God, that he's going to give us heaven. That's what comes natural for me and for you. And unless something happens really deep in our hearts, then our morality will be bad and we will not move towards God or towards other people. See, love is supreme. Don't you see how it trumps all other forms of relating? Now you should be asking, well, what does this love look like? Uh, Verses 4 to 7 tell us this is the character of love. and If you look at the list, it it puts it in the positive with some of them and the negative with some of them. But what Paul's trying to do in verses 4 to 7 is show the Corinthian church what they're not. (laughs) 1 to 3 is who they are. 4 to 7 is who they're not. They are not these things. And some of these aren't very surprising when you think about the character of love. Things like patience and kindness. It doesn't envy or boast or insist on its own way. It's not arrogant or rude. It rejoices at the truth and not with wrongdoing. These are obvious. But verse 7 becomes quite unreasonable. (laughs) Verse 7 says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So if we were to take that seriously, it sure does sound like what Paul's saying is that love makes you a gullible pushover who gets walked over all the time while having their head in la-la land. That's what verse 7 sounds like. And I totally understand that's your reaction. But really, love is something very different. What this verse is saying is that we can move towards other in a vulnerable position and risk. What this verse is saying is that we can move in a vulnerable position with risk towards others. See, what the gospel heart does is it makes you secure. It makes you so unneedy that it doesn't mind being cheated. It can move towards another without a, a view towards how that person can benefit them. Or without a view towards how that person can get their own agenda. It can move toward another and ask this question. What would benefit this person at this time? And how can I use my resources towards that end? That's the question love asks. What would benefit this person at this time? And how can I use my resources towards that end? So to bear all things, believe all things, hope in all things, and endure all things, it's costly. And it should lead us toward a conviction of sin so much more swiftly than it does to inspiration. And that's the point Paul's trying to make. He's trying to show us that something miraculous must occur in the human heart for this to be possible. I read a story uh, about a man and a woman this week. The, the man uh, uh, is an elder at Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis. His name's Sam Wheatley. On the other, uh, the, 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 and he's interacting with this woman. And this uh, woman, uh, her name is Carolyn McGee. See, in 1964 at Second Presbyterian Church, when Sam was six years old, there was a kneel-in. And at this kneel-in, uh, the, d- blacks and whites, uh, they knelt on the front steps of the sanctuary of Second Presbyterian Church as a non-violent protest to a policy. The policy that the church held was they would not allow... Blacks to worship in their sanctuary. So they had this kneel in. And almost 50 years later, 2012, uh, the church invited uh, the protesters who were still living and all their family members uh, to come to this service. And at this service, different people uh, told their testimonies, gave their stories of what happened that day and in that season at Second Presbyterian Church. And Sam Whealy sitting there as an elder who was a six-year-old boy in that church when this happened was deeply moved by the testimony of Carolyn McGee. Carolyn McGee was an uh, elderly woman, and her brother was Joe Purdy. Joe Purdy was the first black man who was denied entrance into this church. He entered, and what, what, what Sam did is Sam introduced himself to Carolyn after this, this inspiring testimony, and he, inv- he, he, he invited Carolyn and her family to his house for dinner. And over the next several months, they had many frank conversations about race over these meals, over email, and they became to really trust one another and become friends. And at one point, Sam's son, who was 25 years old, uh, he asked Carolyn a question. Sam uh, was a math teacher, and he was a math teacher at a school that was 87% non white. And here was his question. Uh, To this elderly black woman, Carolyn McGee, he says, How do I convince my students I truly care about them and I want what's best for their future? They see me as a white guy from a privileged background and they are not sure they can trust me. Here's Carolyn's answer it's quite profound. She says, Get to know them, listen to their stories, value them as individuals made in the image of God, love them as neighbors as you love yourself. End quote. It's a simple answer, isn't it? But aren't the simplest answers sometimes the most difficult? Loving someone as you love yourself is not just hard, it's impossible. Valuing people, particularly those who are different from you, is very difficult. Listening to people's stories instead of reading your own story into their story is simple, but it's very, very difficult. And if we're honest, the darkness in our own hearts, particularly when it comes to matters of race, we too should be convinced of how inadequately love is displayed in our lives. So at this point in the text, you get down with verse 7, and you're like, Paul, can you let up a little bit? This is hard to hear. But he's going to give us a solution in this forever of love, verses 8 to 13. Look at verse 8 with me. It says, love never ends. Love never ends. Then he goes on and he says, uh, he, he lists those different things. You remember, prophecies mean spiritual intuition. Tongues really speaking to a spiritual experience. Knowledge means that they're intelligent. And he says all these things are going to pass away, but love never ends. And Paul uses this metaphor, being a child versus being an adult. At first it sounds like he's speaking in a negative way about children, but that's not the case. He's just saying that children are partially grown up. A child is intended to mature into an adult. And so our spiritual knowledge, our spiritual experience, and our spiritual intuition are only partially grown up. They're incomplete. The completion of these things, that the intended result of these things is love. Because love is the only thing we're going to have in heaven. Love is eternal. Think about it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they have existed for all eternity. They did not create you and me, the universe, because they were lonely. The universe happened as an overflow of the love they had within themselves. And so when when it says that love never ends, it means that love has always existed within God. And love's always going to continue to the the very, very end of the age for all eternity into the future. But you're not going to need hope, people. People. Why? Because Jesus is going to be before your eyes. You're not going to need faith anymore because you're going to see the object of your faith. You're not going to need spiritual experiences, intuition, or knowledge when you're in heaven. For Look at verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. These experiences, this knowledge, this intuition—this is the stuff of children. The stuff of being grown up is love, because love's all you're going to need with Jesus. So, what does this mean for you and for me now? Look at verse one. It says, "Pursue love." Uh, that word "pursue" is a unique word in the New Testament. Uh, it, it's usually translated "persecute," or "run after," or "follow in haste." So really what it means is to go after something with great passion and vigor. So let's apply it to to, to pursue love. Let's apply this to loving cross-culturally across racial lines. So I just want to give you, uh, as as your pastor, I want to give you three ways to pursue love when it comes to racial reconciliation. Uh, The first is build relationships. Tony talked about it. It's really hard uh, for most of us to pursue relationships across racial lines because of how our lives are set up. Our whole social construct, both intentionally and unintentionally, strive to make birds of a feather flock together. It's true in our workplaces. It's true in our schools. It's It's really, really true in our neighborhoods. So... We have to find ways of getting around people who are not like us and hear their story, like Carolyn McGee suggests. The first time this happened for me, it happened when I was a freshman in college. I was a freshman in college. um, I I, I I had this opportunity to coach basketball at Tates Creek High School. Um, I grew up in Northern Kentucky. And where I grew up in Northern Kentucky, my elementary school and middle schools were 99% white. My high school was 95% white. My church was 100% white. Then I go to college, and I start coaching at Tate's Creek High School. And I was a minority for the first time in a room. It's the first time it's ever happened for me. It made me terribly uncomfortable. And I was so uncomfortable that I would have quit if the Lord had not kept me there. And it ended up being a rich gift to me. But the most important thing that happened over these two years that I coached was not what the team accomplished. And honestly, they accomplished a lot. Not because I was any good, they were just good. (laughs) But The most important thing that happened for me uh, was the relationships that I gained, that I forged with young men who didn't look anything like me, that their upbringing was not anything like mine. But I got to know what it was like to be them. I knew what it was like to be black and to be, and not just in America, not just in Kentucky, but in Lexington. Not fully, but partially. I didn't choose this experience. I got thrown into it. And maybe this is what needs to happen for you. Can I have a suggestion how to throw yourself in this kind of situation? You can move downtown. Downtown might be the only place in our city where you can live around people who are radically different than you in almost every direction. Just my little plug. <laughs> Second, uh, moving downtown uh, or building relationships. Second one's get educated. So many of us, we're, we're isolated in our relationships, not just from people who look different than us, we're isolated in our own ideas. So, to pursue love to, to pursue love racially means to learn about the experience of people who look different than you. Let me suggest a couple books. One is uh, Heal Us Emmanuel. Heal Us Emmanuel is a book that's written as a compilation of essays by ministers, uh, most of whom are non white in our denomination. Uh, teaching about these issues of race, I found to be particularly helpful uh, the last several months. But perhaps nothing—nothing uh, nothing I've read has been more important to me in getting educated about this whole issue of race than the letter from Birmingham Jail by Martin Luther King. So there's countless resources. And parents, let me talk to you for a minute. Uh, how can you think for your kids? How can you lead your kids in this issue of race? Uh, well, at Licensed Children's Theater uh, next month, there's a play. Uh, it's based in the civil rights movement in Birmingham, and it's called the Watsons Go to Birmingham. Um, it would be an excellent resource for you uh, to lead uh, your kids in. Even if you're not a kid and you're not a parent, I suggest you go. Uh, and lastly, so so um, build relationships, get educated. And lastly, repent. Um, we will never nail this issue. Racism is something that is out there, with what we see in the news and our social media feed. But racism's in our heart. All of us, we prefer people who look like us over people who are different than us. We never fully arrive at a place of properly valuing those who are different than us. So, what should we do? Repent. The more I thought about this issue, which isn't a lot, the more I've sought to practice rec- racial reconciliation, which isn't a lot, the more I've tried to lead others in it, which isn't a lot the more I see my own sin. I've seen that I participate in systemic racism as a white male of influence. I keep silent when I should speak. I prefer fear over love. And I see my ignorance of what it's like to be a minority. I could go on and on, yet my sin should lead me not to hide, but to repent. My sin should lead me not to make excuses, but to repent. But what's going to enable your repentance? What's going to enable my repentance? How can I fail at racial reconciliation while simultaneously pursue love? It's Jesus. See, Jesus was both of our race and not of our race. He was fully human, but but he was someone different altogether. He had God running in his DNA. And he pursued love towards those who were different from him. He came with vigor from the confines of heaven when, when he was with those whom he shared their race, the Father and the Holy Spirit. This was a cross-cultural experience for the Son. And, and not only were we different from the Son in culture, but we were also his enemy. We rebelled against him. We ignored him. We worshipped everything else over him, even though he made us and he takes care of us. Yet this God-man, he died for us. We're loved by God, so we're ruined but rescued, awful but adopted, devious but delivered. The gospel tells us that our brokenness is not the sole proprietorship of any one ethnic group, nor is the grace of the gospel the inheritance of any one ethnic group. Sin is the identity of all mankind, and grace is the identity of all those who claim Christ. So, church, let our standing in the gospel take precedent and priority over our racial standing. Because if it does, then we can see reconciliation take place as we pursue love with one another. Let's pray. Father, we do repent as a church. We have um, per- pursued relationships. We per- we've pursued. Uh, we preferred uh, ministries uh, with people who look just like us, people who act just like us. Or we have refused uh, to do the hard work of listening. We preferred to talk. Uh, we preferred excuses truth is we've preferred ourselves over you. And Lord, for that we repent. Lord Jesus, we know that without the Holy Spirit, that we will make no progress. And Lord, we we long for heaven to come to earth. So Lord, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray these things in your name. Amen.